died and his finished work so we don't have to fear the judgment that could come upon us. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar defied the God of the universe for most of his life, but towards the end of his reign, God humiliated him. And as we saw last week in chapter 4, I believe that for the remainder of his rule as king, he sought to please God. This morning we'll be in Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. He, I believe, was genuinely converted and lived the remainder of his rule as king for God. However, in 562 B.C. he died and his kingdom was given over to his son, Nabonidus. Nabonidus reigned for a few years uh, before he brought on his son, Belshazzar, to be co-king, co-regent with him. And Belshazzar's primary responsibility was to rule over the city of Babylon, much like Daniel's responsibility was during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Here in chapter 5, we have a drinking party that King Belshazzar throws 23 years after the death of his grandfather in 539 B.C. So following the death of King Nebuchadnezzar, here comes Belshazzar and he throws this drinking party that we're going to read about here in chapter 5. So let's read this passage together. I'll read, you follow along, beginning with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple the house of God which was in Jerusalem. And the kings and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. And then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking together. The king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom." Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father... Illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. 
Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom has been found in you. Just now, the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not. They could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you're able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourselves or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. And whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of the beasts. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that He sets over it whomever He wishes. Yet you, His son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him. And this, inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mine, mine, tekel, a person. This is the interpretation of the message. Mine, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. And that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Another passage here shows to us that God humbles the proud. We've seen this theme before, but that's what we're going to see here again in chapter 5. And I think the reason for 
repeating this same refrain, God humbles the proud, God exalts the humble, is because this is what the last part of the book of Daniel is going to be about. We'll talk about that at the end. That God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. In verses 1-4, through we see the king's pride. But before we get into the content of the passage, I need to make one note that I mentioned in the introduction. That is, King Belshazzar is the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 2, because the text tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar is King Belshazzar's father. And we saw this throughout. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold, silver, and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple. And we could cite several other verses in this passage as well. But the word father, you need to recognize, has a broader range of meaning in Hebrew than we tend to use. Look at the margin of your Bible under verse 2. What's another alternative for the word father? See that in there in the margin of your Bible? Okay, forefather. So the word father in Hebrew can mean literal father or can also mean grandfather, ancestor, or something like that. And so in this case, I think the margin of your Bible is helping you to understand the fuller meaning. I don't think father is a bad translation. I think that, that when Daniel said it, when Daniel's writing it, he's thinking of it in terms of a broader meaning, your forefather. And from history, we know that King Belshazzar is the grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, that it was King Nebuchadnezzar, and then the, the king I mentioned earlier, King Nabonidus, after his death, took the rule, and then he allowed his son to be his co-regent, Belshazzar. Well, this text focuses on the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar. And what you should recognize is that King Nebuchadnezzar is still ruling during this time. He's still alive, apparently, but, but he's ruling in a different region. Well, a few days before the events recorded in chapter 5, Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, had suffered a crushing defeat in the hands of King Cyrus of Persia. This is the, the next kingdom that's going to take over. King Cyrus of Persia was a, a skilled military um, a commander and Belshazzar's father had suffered a crushing defeat to this Persian commander. So in an effort to boost morale and to forget about the trouble of the kingdom, King Belshazzar invites his thousand nobles there in Babylon to a drinking party at the royal palace that we see in verse 1. And at the time of the feast, Persia... We know from history, Persia is actually encamped around the city of Babylon. And they're planning their attack. But King Belshazzar ignores it. He ignores that they're outside the city because he believes that his city is impregnable. That is impenetrable. No one can get inside of his city without permission. The city of Babylon had everything it needed. It had a doubly thick wall of defense. The first wall we talked about last week, the outer wall was 20 feet thick and 40 feet high and security towers every 160 feet along its perimeter. In addition, they had a river that flowed nearby or into the city that provided an endless supply of water. So they had all that they needed. They could stay there. In fact, they could stay there for years because they had an endless, or not an endless supply, but they had a great supply of food in their storehouses that would allow them to stay in the city without anybody leaving for years. So they thought that they could withhold any attack that any other empire or country could try to bring against them. And so he has this party. While the camps of Persia, while the, the Persian armies are encamped outside of his own city. And this was not only an opportunity 
this drinking party was not only an opportunity to boost morale, but it was also an opportunity to renew the loyalty of the Babylonians in their false gods. For decades, those gods had been pushed to the background, largely because of the conversion of his grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar. And so, maybe, just maybe, the reason for the steady decline of the kingdom of Babylon was that the leadership and the kingdom had been acknowledging the wrong god. They were acknowledging the god of Judah, which was also the god of Nebuchadnezzar. And when they did that, they actually ignored the ancient gods of Babylon that, in Belshazzar's mind, had gotten them to their heights, that had brought them to their greatest time in history. So, this party is used as a means to renew loyalty in the false gods of Babylon. Instead of bowing down to the god of his grandfather, King Belshazzar decided to defy him and pay homage to the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And what better way to do that than to use the vessels, the goblets from the Jerusalem temple that were symbols of God's rule over Judah. Look at verse 2. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, the party's just getting started, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, grandfather, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, these thousand men that had come, his wives and concubines might drink from them. And so they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which is in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines, drank from them. And they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So they're drinking from the vessels that were designed to be used in worship service to the true and living God. And they're doing it while they're giving praise to false gods. And the reason that I believe that drinking from these temple goblets is not an act of convenience, that is, you know, we don't really have anything else. Can you look around and see if we have anything else to drink from? And rather, it's an act of defiance is because of verses 22 and 23. Look down there with me. Verse 22. Here's Daniel's rebuke of him. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, after he tells him the story of Nebuchadnezzar, you have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. You knew how God had humiliated your grandfather. But, verse 23, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of His house before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and all your ways, you have not glorified. Belshazzar was not ignorant to what he was doing. He knew that these goblets were a, a, an act of defiance against the God of his grandfather, the God of Judah against the true and living God. So we see the king's pride in verses 1-4. through four. And then in verses 5-28, through 28, we see God's message for the king's pride. God's message for the king's pride. And it comes by way of this writing on the wall in verses 5 and 6. And what God is doing through this writing on the wall is saying that I will not be ignored. God will not be ignored. He may allow pagans to live in defiance and unbelief for a time, but God will always have the final say, even if He doesn't in this lifetime. 
In this story, God doesn't wait until the next lifetime to have the final say over King Belshazzar and these thousand nobles and his wives and concubines. Instead, he speaks to King Belshazzar and his party while they are alive. And he does it through this handwriting on the wall. In verse 5, we find that a man's finger appears and begins writing on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And we know that everybody sees this, not just the king, because the writing was still on the wall when Daniel comes and Daniel reads it right from the wall. So all of them have seen it, although the only reaction we're going to get is of the king. And we see that in verse 6. In verse 6, the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack and his knees began knocking. Four things happened there. One, two, and four. The first, second, and fourth of those things you've probably either done yourself or have seen other people who have done this. Your face has become pale in fear. Your thoughts alarmed you. Certainly this has happened to all of us. And then the fourth one, that your knees knocked together. I know that that has happened to me. I was on a uh, 15-foot ladder, I think it was, and I was near the top rung, and I was not prepared for what was going to happen next. While I'm up there trying to maintain balance and keep from falling, my knees began knocking together like the cartoons. I thought that was just a big joke. It's real. So most of us have experienced the first, second, and fourth. But notice the second one. His hip joints went slack. His hip joints went slack. Now the text literally reads like this. The joints of his loin were loosened. Which could mean that his midsection became weak in fear. Or some scholars believe that it means that he was so fearful that he wet himself. The joints of his loins were loosened. Well, this is terrifying for him. And so, verses 7 through 12, we see the search for the meaning. Verses 7 through 12, he says, If someone can come and and tell me what this says and what it means, then I will make them third in command over all. He gives this great positive incentive here in verse 7, at the end of the verse. Anyone who can read this inscription will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold and have authority as third ruler, probably third behind Remember the two kings that are currently ruling, his father, Nabonidus, and himself. And so if you want to be third in command in the entire kingdom, read this and interpret it to me. Of course, all the king's wise men come, verse 8. But they cannot read. It's it's predictable, really, by this point, because we've seen it happen a couple times before with King Nebuchadnezzar. It's not that they couldn't read the letters. Apparently, God wrote them in Aramaic, but they simply couldn't understand the significance. What, What does this mean? What is he trying to say? And so, verse 9, notice his face becomes paler and paler as his nobles are perplexed over what's happening. But where the wise men failed, Daniel succeeded, didn't he? Daniel had success because he had access to God who wrote these words. And while Daniel knew of the drinking party that was going on, he was likely unaware of the writing on the wall until someone came and told him. At this time, Daniel is probably about 80 years old. And with the death of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel probably also lost his position. It seems clear that he was second in power under King Nebuchadnezzar, but there's no talk of him being at anything close to the top here under Belshazzar. In fact, he's offered, if he can interpret this, then he will be put to third in command. And and if he were second in command, obviously that would be a step down. Well, the queen remembered Daniel 
the queen is not the wife of the king here because verse 2, do you remember in verse 2 at the end? Who was here at the drinking party? The thousand nobles and then his wives and concubines. So Belshazzar's wives are already there. This is not his wife, the queen, but rather probably the queen mother, which was either Nabonidus' wife or King Nebuchadnezzar's wife that's still living. Whatever the case, she had remembered. She was there when Daniel had interpreted the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar before and she remembered how God had spoken through him. And so she calls for Daniel. Daniel interprets the dream in verses 13 to 28. Before he does, they question him. Probably a, maybe a form of intimidation to show who's really boss. You know, are you Daniel of the exiles? He doesn't say, are you Daniel that was second in command to my grandfather, King Nebuchadnezzar? No, he says, aren't you one of those captives that came back from Judah? And you're, you're weak. And Daniel speaks. Before he gives the interpretation to the writing on the wall, he first makes a contrast. He wants to show the difference between King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar. And he does that in verses 17 through 24. And his main point is this. You didn't learn from your grandfather. You didn't learn from his humiliation. God was behind that all. Certainly like Belshazzar, King Nebuchadnezzar had been exalted to great power. But Daniel says it wasn't because of his own ability. It's not because of your own ability. It's because God granted granted it to him that it was from the Most High God. The problem for King Nebuchadnezzar was that he didn't realize that at first. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, O King, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. Because of the grandeur which He bestowed on Him, all the peoples, nations, men of every language feared and trembled before Him. Whomever He wished, He killed. And whomever He he wished, He spared alive. And whomever He wished, He elevated. And whomever He wished, He humbled. See, Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, I'm the one who controls the rise and fall of everyone. I can determine who is put in the position of power, who dies, who lives. But, verse 20, when his heart, King Nebuchadnezzar's heart, was lifted... And his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly. He was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. King Nebuchadnezzar didn't realize that all of his sovereignty, power, grandeur, rule, his ability to make people rise and fall was all from the Most High God. So what did God do? Look at verse 21. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beasts and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that He, God, sets over it whomever He wishes. God is the one who causes the rise and fall of everyone. You might feel like you're the puppeteer, like you're controlling everything, but it's God who's causing the rise and fall of For example, Daniel. Remember? Whomever he elevates, whomever he wishes, he elevates. Daniel was one of those people that King Nebuchadnezzar said, hey, you're second in command. You know what God's saying? That wasn't you. That was me. I brought him to that position of authority. And in order for King Nebuchadnezzar to see that, he had to be humiliated. And that's why Daniel says the following in verse 22. Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Even though you knew all this. You knew what happened to your grandfather. Verse 23, 
But you instead have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of His house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, concubines, have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and all your ways, you have not glorified. There's the contrast. See, God had raised King Nebuchadnezzar to a position of power, but then he was humbled. And God, he recognized God's rule. King Belshazzar had also been raised to power by God as he raises all kings to power, but King Belshazzar had not acknowledged God's rule. Now, obviously there's a difference. God doesn't give him seven years of humiliation where he can reflect on this time and you know, recognize that God is the Most High Ruler. He simply judged him, in fact, this very night. But Daniel states the three sins of Belshazzar here in verses 22 and 23. The first sin is the sin of defiance, not ignorance. We talked about this earlier. It wasn't that, oh, I needed more goblets and I didn't know where to get them from. It was, this God of Judah is killing us. I mean, we're, we're, we're getting worse and worse as a kingdom. Let's go back to the old gods that got us to this place. Secondly, that's found in verse 22. The second sin was the sin of desecration not convenience. He makes common what was meant to be sacred at the first part of verse 23. And then the third sin was praise to the false gods, not the true God. He's praising the wrong gods. And when you praise the wrong gods, you're actually defying the true and living God. You're rejecting the true and living God. So after explaining the expectations from God, Daniel then gives the interpretation of the message from God and its message of judgment. And this judgment is something that is real and that is coming from this Most High God in verses 25 and 28. And here Daniel explains the writing on the wall. Now what you need to know about this writing is that it would have been written in Aramaic with no vowels and no spaces and it would be read from right to left. Okay? So opposite of what we read. And since it had no vowels or no spaces, it would be all consonants and it would be a little bit complex to, to understand. So let me see if I can just show you what that might look like. Oh. Okay. So if we're reading right to left here, it's mine, mine, tekel, person. Tekel, person. That would be the Aramaic. This is kind of the English transliteration of the letters so that you can kind of see. This is what it might have looked like on the wall, except for in Aramaic. And these words all have to do with money. The first two are mine, mine. And if you look in the margin of the Bible, you see that it has to do with a mina, like a, a form of money. Then the second one is tekel or shekel. And then the third is a person, which is a plural form of the word perez. And it's a half shekel. So you can see that in the margin of your Bible. But they're written as passive participles. So they're thinking, the readers of this, the interpreters are thinking... What does this have to do with anything? Right? A mina, a mina, a shekel, and a half shekel. What does that have to do with anything? But they're actually written in a, in a passive participle giving it a verbal meaning. And so we could summarize it by saying numbered, numbered, weighed, and measured. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and measured. So the first one is numbered, mene. And Daniel gives this translation for us here in verses 26 to 28. Mine, mine, numbered, numbered. The kingdom of 
King Belshazzar has been numbered. The days have been numbered and now it's come to an end. He says this twice and then he moves on to the next one. Tekel. Okay, you are weighed. Numbered, numbered, weighed. The king's actions now have been weighed and they're found lacking of moral worth. Verse 27. And then verse 28, Perez, which is a singular, singular of the actual word that was written, a person. It just means your kingdom is divided. This doesn't mean divided and given to other kingdoms, but divided into pieces and destroyed. Now, it is going to be given to another kingdom, the Medes and the Persians. But it's actually talking about the fact that it's going to be completely gone. There's not going to be a remnant of the, the Babylonians. If we think back to chapter 4, the head of gold, okay, the head of gold, or, or chapter 2, the head of gold is going to be replaced by the chest of arms and silver, which represented the Medes and the Persians. So we have the king's pride, verses 1 through 4, God's message for the king's pride, verses 5 to 28, and then finally, the results of the king's pride, verses 29 through 31, the results of the king's pride. Well, Daniel is promoted. It's only going to be short-lived because obviously King Belshazzar is going to die tonight. And so King, uh, so Daniel probably doesn't think much of it anyway. But the main thing that we need to focus on here is verses 30 and 31, that King Belshazzar is humiliated without an opportunity for repentance. And it's amazing that really only in a few short verses, or we could say just verse 30, one verse, mighty Babylon has fallen. This kingdom that was one of the greatest kingdoms in history, in the history of mankind, has fallen in the matter of one verse. And it reads like this, That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. And then verse 31, So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Not Darius the Babylonian. Darius the Mede. Tremedia. Tremedia and Persia joined together, the Medes and the Persians, now will reign. The kingdom of Babylon has fallen that quickly. Christians, the kingdoms of this world, even the greatest of earthly kingdoms, are like dust on the scales before God, aren't they? And students of Scripture would not have been surprised by this. Certainly Daniel recognized that this was going to happen because this is what God prophesied to the people of Judah before Babylon even took over and, and made Judah captive. This has been prophesied in the prophet, uh, in the prophet that we know, Habakkuk. Habakkuk cried out to God in Habakkuk chapter one, "God, when will you judge the wicked people of Judah? I mean, the people in my country are so godless, and they need to be judged." And God says in chapter two, "I am going to judge them, and I'm going to use someone more pagan than Judah to judge them. It is Babylon. I'm going to judge them with Babylon." Habakkuk says, "Wait a second." I'm with you on the judging of Judah. I, I got that part. But to do it with a group that's more wicked than Judah? Babylon? Are you kidding me? And God responds, Habakkuk, don't worry about that. I'm going to judge Babylon in my time as well. You simply need to trust me and recognize that I accomplish what I want according to the, mean, the means that I choose. And in this case, I've chosen to use wicked Babylon to judge wicked Judah. But don't worry. I'm going to judge Babylon as well. This is the 
This is a prophecy that they should have recognized. Babylon was not going to forever rule over Judah or Israel. And so in the 6th century B.C., we have the rise of Babylon. They capture the people of Judah. They pilfer the Jerusalem temple and then later destroy the temple. They bring back thousands of captives to Babylon to indoctrinate them in the Babylonian way of life and the Babylonian way of religion. But over the span of 80 years, probably 65 years, remember Daniel's probably just a teenager when he comes, and he's about 80 here, over the span of 65 years, Judah would not ultimately assimilate with Babylon and become extinct. Instead, God would preserve them and cause mighty Babylon to fall. And this is a picture for us that God will cause the kingdom of this world to fall at the end of time. Revelation 17 and 18, I've brought this passage up before, but uh, you would do well to read them again. It's talking about the fall of Babylon. And Babylon is simply representative of all that is opposed to God in this world. Like, think Babel back at the beginning. That's just another way to say Babylon in Genesis 11. But the point is that just in a moment's time, even though they rise to such great heights and take over the world almost, they fall in just one hour. That's the, 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 uh, the refrain that you keep hearing. Oh, Babylon, Babylon, how quickly you have fallen. In one hour, all of your possessions have been taken. We learn, uh, let, let's think about three implications this morning. Three implications from our passage. Number one, God does not ignore the sin of the wicked. God does not ignore the sin of the wicked. Sometimes it's true. God delays in judging the wicked in this lifetime. And other times He acts right away. But we can be confident that God will surely punish the wicked in His time. We don't have to fear that God... Well, maybe He forgot about them. You know, all the persecution that they're bringing on me... They're not even going to be judged for this. We don't have to fear that because God will punish the wicked in His time. The Most High God may be ignored and He may be defiantly rejected for a time, but He will always have the final say. No one can escape His wrath apart from humbly acknowledging His means of rescue. And we know from the rest of Scripture that our only means of escape is by trusting in His Son the work of reconciliation that He made on our behalf. It's only through His satisfactory atonement for our sins that we can be freed from the penalty and power of sin. And it's only through His righteousness, Christ's righteousness, that we can be credited with a right standing before God. No one can come to God without turning from their sins and trusting in God's promised Redeemer. See, the same means of salvation that the Old Testament person was required to follow in order to be saved is the same means we have today. That is, we must trust in, we must turn from our sins and trust in God's promised Redeemer. Now, we have more information about who that Redeemer is, and so we have a, a, a clear responsibility to follow after that promised Redeemer, Redeemer. That means we acknowledge our pride that's turning from our sins and our inability to come to God on the basis of our own righteousness, right? We just saying, nothing in my hands I bring. We don't have anything to offer you, God. Simply to the cross I cling. We have to trust that God will save us through those means that He's given. Sin of the wicked will not be ignored by God. Either the wicked will pay for it 
for Christ has paid for it on the cross. And the proof that God accepts that payment is in His resurrection, that Jesus did not stay dead. God made Him alive to prove that His payment was satisfactory and now Christ lives for us and He's coming again to rule and to reign over all creation. God does not ignore the sin of the wicked and we must respond to that truth. Number two, second implication. We should learn from the humiliation of others. We should learn from the humiliation of others. When God humbles the proud, we should learn from their negative example. That's what Daniel was telling King Belshazzar. Why didn't you learn from your grandfather? You knew all these things. How God had humiliated him. But you didn't learn. Have you seen God humiliate a leader in their pride? Have you seen God humble a boss or a family member? Then we should learn from that that God will not be mocked. He will judge those who exalt themselves. So we should align ourselves properly before God, which means not on the pedestal of our own self-righteousness, but on our knees, recognizing our worthlessness before the holy God, saying, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King. Isaiah chapter 6. We should learn from the humiliation of others and rightly put ourselves into subjection before God, humbly following Him. And then thirdly, God has future and clear sovereignty over all. God has future and clear sovereignty over all. We could say it this way. God's future and clear sovereignty is guaranteed. It's guaranteed. We have several reasons to be confident in the clear and future sovereignty of God over all things. One is that God is the Creator. He's the Sustainer. He's the Ruler over all today. So why would He not be the final Ruler? Second reason we know that He will be the future and clear leader is that, or ruler is that God has told us that He will be. We have a promise from God that He will reign on this earth through the person of His Son in the Millennial Kingdom and the eternal state to follow. And the third evidence we have that God will be the future and clear leader, clear ruler, is that this evidence that we have here in Daniel that God is sovereign over the kings and kingdoms of this world and even the greatest of them can be brought to nothing in just a short period of time. And if He can do that to these great and powerful kingdoms of history, can He not bring all kingdoms to their knees just as quickly as He brought them to their pedestal of power? See, it is God that takes responsibility for the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. And just as we saw with King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar is no match for the Almighty God. And so what we learn from Israel's history and what we see again in Daniel 5 is that God's plan cannot be thwarted. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar said. No one can, no one can attack him or go against his plan and no one can question, question him saying, who, what has he done? Chapter 4, verse 35, no one can oppose him. And that is the same story, friends, of the end times as well. That our God will have his way. And no one 
will be able to usurp His power and His authority over them. Everyone will be brought to their knees one way or another so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we are encouraged and emboldened to follow You when we are reminded of Your future rule over all. We're thankful that You have sent Your Son to make a clear expression of who You are and what You demand. And we are also thankful for His future coming. Lord, we pray that You would send Him quickly. The evil on this world has not stopped. It only seems to get worse. But we know that there will be a day when it does come to an end, when Jesus wins. And we are grateful because we are sure that we are on the winning side because we have trusted in Your promises. And we look forward to the day when You will rule over all and that You remove the presence of sin from us. Not just the penalty and the power of sin, but You will remove the presence from us so that it will no longer have any claim on us. It will no longer have a pull on us. We will not fall into temptation when we reach the next life. Final kingdom. The eternal state. Because all sin will be, will be removed from Your presence. We will stand before You as holy saints, people who have been redeemed by the blood of our Savior. And Lord, we don't have anything to stand on when we come before You besides the finished work of Christ. Nothing of our own that we bring. Everything that, we've ha- that we have, we have been given. And so we acknowledge our worthlessness before You and Your greatness and recognize our shame and our need to find refuge in Your Son who prays You for offering us that means of escape, that refuge in the rock that He is. We pray that You would help us to live in that way and to encourage others to do the same. In Jesus' name, Amen.